So the other night, um, we were exploring how identification with any of the five aggregates led to suffering. And I shared the chant with you of form, feeling, perception, and so forth were impermanent and not self. Not self in the sense of not belonging to a personal self or making up a personal self, empty of a solid sense of self. And the Buddha also taught that all of the aggregates were empty in and of themselves. And so that's what I'd like to explore more tonight, the teaching of sunya, empty. Shunya, shunyata, emptiness. And that's experiencing all things as empty of a permanent essence or of an inherent kind of substrate so that everything that arises is based on causes and conditions. There's um, all the phenomena are dependently arisen. This leads to this. So there's this quality of insubstantiality or transparency to everything. And when we really deeply experience this, It doesn't make sense to hold on to anything or to cling to anything. There are different descriptions of empty and emptiness in the various Buddhist traditions, um, but the most liberating um, thing to me is the um, awareness that clinging itself is empty, that when finally um, our experience is empty of clinging. Um, And that to me is the the most liberative realization, is that this emptiness of clinging to anything at all. I like these, this is um, a conversation between um, two Asian masters. Shen Sui says, Our body is the Bodhi tree and our mind a mirror bright. Carefully we wipe them hour by hour and let no dust alight. That's his realization. But then Hui Hui Neng replies, There is no Bodhi tree nor a mirror bright. Since all is void, where can the dust alight? And I really um, love that, that response, the sense of possibility in that. So is there nothing? Ajahn Chah says we call the mind empty, but actually it's full of wisdom. And so our practice is about emptying ourselves of concepts, beliefs, assumptions, projections, all the attachments that overlay experience. We're emptying that out. And it's not 
about getting rid of thoughts, getting rid of mind states. It's not about getting rid of anything. It's more about the realization that the thoughts, all the constructs, the fabrications are empty. They're not solid. The views and opinions themselves are empty. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya. That things exist, Okachiana, is one extreme. That they do not exist is another. Rejecting both these extremes, the Tathagata points out the Dharma via the middle. And so this, is, this middle way is to recognize the dependently arisen nature of things. So it's a, empty is about the conditioned nature of phenomena, not about their non-existence. And that's, um, that's really um, important. Because we can, we can say, well, what's doing the knowing? What is it that's doing the knowing? And our experience is that we can't find anything. It's unfindable. And Ajahn Chah says, well, it doesn't actually matter. Don't try looking for what's knowing, because knowing is happening. There's knowing happening all the time. And just to know that. Um, I know um, I've experienced at different times this sense of known by what? And then the sense of I starts to fall apart. And it can be scary. There's a brief, brief fear with I falling apart. And then the realization, oh, it can't fall apart because it wasn't there in the first place. And that's really reassuring. <laughs> There's nothing to fall apart. (laughs) There wasn't anything there except what I fabricated or what's been fabricated and is being fabricated. So you don't need to be afraid about it falling apart. Also, things are still expressed and revealed even more fully when they're known as empty, because the clouds of perception and misperception and opinion are no longer obstructing the purity of awareness. So, for example, when there are hindrances there, when they're experienced as empty, insubstantial, often they disappear. Oh, wanting. Some state of wanting has been, is being fabricated, but it's not real. And then it disappears. Sometimes when there's a beautiful state, like compassion, loving kindness, generosity, as we begin to know it as impermanent and empty, at first it can seem to increase or expand, grow. But what's really happening, at least in my experience, it is often a subtle grasping to that beautiful state. And it's that becomes empty. And when there's no grasping and no attachment, the state expands. 
And I know that some of you experience this, how when you pay attention to a beautiful state without grasping, there's a moment where it expands and then gradually fades away. Because it is a state, it's not permanent or solid. It expands, becomes boundless, and then poof, and then the next arising appears. It fades on its own due to the causes and conditions that have caused it to arise and caused the next things to arise. If we try and make things empty, that's aversion. Sometimes a difficult state can arise and we want it to be empty. (laughs) Empty, empty, (laughs) but it's not. Um, I had this um, wonderful teaching of, um, I'd been you know, meditating for some time and things at times had been empty and disappeared and there was this anger that had been arising and dissatisfaction and I wanted the anger to be empty. And so I would make a note, anger, empty. And it wasn't doing it. And then I had this image of this nicey-nicey emptiness fairy with her little wand going, empty, empty, empty. And this dark, angry mind state kind of arose and it said, come near me with that wand (laughs) again and I'll kill you. (laughs) And so... (laughs) So sometimes... (laughs) States have to be known and move through. We can't make something be empty. It doesn't work. Um, Eventually, (laughs) the humor softened the anger and it faded. Um, But sometimes a process needs to unfold and be known and understood. And then there can be a sense of it dissipating and being insubstantial. But those, some of those steps of understanding the causes and conditions need to happen. We can't override them. They're really important. Gradually, through this process, through our practice, the sense of self does begin to thin out. It becomes more and more transparent. And then what we get to see is that it arises without obscuring. So um, when it's known as empty and insubstantial, it doesn't necessarily disappear It's just that it's not obscuring awareness. And I find that so valuable. It's not, nothing has to be got rid of. As things arise, pass, do whatever they do, they don't have the same charge when they're known in that way. There's a releasing because there isn't an eye that's caught. Concepts are also useful. We're not trying to get rid of them, 
when we're saying concepts are empty. <laughs> I don't want any concepts. This is from Nananda, um, a Buddhist monk. Rallying the concepts for the higher purpose of developing wisdom. That's what we're doing. We're rallying the concepts for the higher purpose of developing wisdom, whereby the concepts concepts themselves are transcended. So it's not about getting rid of anything. So we can respect the functioning of conventional reality, of concepts and all these things, and yet undermine the beliefs that reify or solidify them. So there's that um, being with without getting rid of in a way that takes the suffering out of the experience. Sometimes people say, well, if everything's empty, won't I be indifferent? Um, Won't it be not me, not mine, everything's empty, it's your problem. You're empty. (laughs) I'm empty. (laughs) What's the problem? But it isn't a walling off of the heart and calling that emptiness or liberation. Denying the existence of bodies of others may remove attachment or aversion, but it certainly removes compassion. And in this, the way that the Buddha was um, instructing or teaching the appreciation of emptiness, there's a genuine attunement attunement to things, and no dukkha created around it for ourselves or for anybody else. The Buddha taught not to be afraid of emptiness. He says being empty is like a round bell. It might look useless just sitting there full of space. But if we cram it full of stuff, even if that stuff is important, and significant, it won't resonate when we strike it. It'll just go thunk. We might be afraid that an empty heart and mind is dead, lifeless, non-caring, an enlightened stone. But the empty heart is filled with presence, ease. Then when something touches us, we can resonate like the clear sound of a bell and respond appropriately. And we know this from our lives when we get our mind is full of busyness and stress and doing. It's hard where it can be too full to think and act compassionately. I know that Um, from my medical practice when everything was too busy and I was just full of all the different things that I had to do. And there would be a tendency to open the door and to go into the next room and say, what do you want? You know, (laughs) without... (laughs) Because I was too full with all the things that I was identified with. 
And then I'd come back from retreat with a degree of emptiness and be full of compassion. And so um, this emptying out makes space for compassion, caring, all the beautiful qualities of mind. And there can be a, a totality that includes both the ultimate view of this knowing, empty, radiant mind. Those three qualities are beautifully described in The Island, a book by Arjuns Amaro and Pasano, Knowing, Empty, and Radiant. And also the conventional of you and me and all our lives and our work and what we're doing. And when the perspectives are interfused, then um, one isn't obstructing the other. We're able to um, respond and act with a full knowing. In the book, The Island, um, Ardenamaro talks more about these qualities of knowing empty and responsive. And the Pali um, phrase is vinyanam anidasanam anantam sapato paba. And that's vinyanam is knowing, cognizant. Anidasanam, he translates as empty. Anantam, unconfined capacity. And um, that's the capacity to respond compassionately. And then the last phrase, lucid, clear. Or lucid can mean that brightness, clarity of mind. Radiance, knowing, empty, radiant. So there's a reference here to the inseparability of wisdom and compassion, where every intention is for the benefit of compassion, for the awakening, for the well-being of others. Immanent and transcendent, being Buddha. And I love the way, again, Arjan Amaro describes this, Tathagata is the way the Buddha referred to himself. The gata part is the wisdom part. Gate, gate, parasam gate, gone, um, completely gone, beyond gone, totally empty, clear. And the tata is thus come, the suchness, the immediacy utterly here, utterly attentive, utterly attuned. That's the compassionate aspect. Completely embodied, attuned, present. And the, with the wisdom of emptiness. All and none. Empty and full. And It's the challenge in our practice to embrace both the emptying out and the the releasing and also appreciating the wholeness.
you might sense that right now. That sense of releasing whatever subtly or not you might be clinging to. So there is this soft, don't cling. Don't have to know what it is. Don't cling. What remains? Notice what remains. Might be stillness, might be compassion, or awakeness. So this true emptiness and compassion, the true wisdom of the heart, is beautiful qualities. And at first, wisdom and compassion can feel like distinct things. But they're actually completely intertwined, part of a totality. Um, An an analogy I like is like the in-breath and the out-breath. Both are always, it's like you can't have one without the other. The in-breath and the out-breath, this constant flow between wisdom and compassion. And um, as we rest in awareness and releasing happens, and the things that are obscuring gradually release, what is revealed are the shining qualities of the heart. That's what remains. It's this immeasurable expression of the wisdom of the heart, the the Brahma-viharas that you've been practicing and cultivating each day. And it's a really reciprocal thing. Love and compassion, metta, and karuna support and help the capacity to release and let be. They create this caring safety for letting releasing to happen. And the more that happens, the more love and compassion, joy, etc. arise spontaneously. And as they arise, the wisdom deepens. And so it's this beautiful um, reciprocal thing. And you can notice that for yourself in your practice. But sometimes as the sense of self gets destabilized or as you experience phenomena as unstable or empty or less solid, it's scary. There's fear. The ego, the self, wants to hold on tighter, or doubt comes in. You know, this is ridiculous, or whatever your form of doubt says. And the metta and compassion provide the safety. They can soften the fear, hold it in kindness. They're an antidote to all the reactivities. And we can just know, oh, fear and doubt are arising rather than judging those difficulties and trying to get rid of them. They can be held in love and compassion until we know them as passing, or we know them as dissolving away. And also, 
we can sometimes intentionally evoke or invite metta and compassion into the space or to imbue everything. May, may compassion arise. May this space be filled with loving kindness or friendliness. We can invoke those qualities and that enables whatever's here to soften the reactivity, the aversion, um, the grasping. And the more softening there is, the more calming and the less agitation and things become more still and we can see more clearly. The contractions start to release as the space is filled with um, the qualities of the heart. Craving and identification are so-called builders of the self and the world. Whereas kindness and compassion, all of the Brahma-viharas, build less self, less world. They evoke interconnection, where the boundaries and the separateness begin to um, fall away. So they are, they release, and whereas the other builds. And metta also is conducive to not taking things so personally. Um, so it's calming, and all the senses feel a relief and find peace. I was practicing a number of years ago, a long retreat, and I was trying a practice I hadn't done before. And um, my, I, I got really contracted around it and frustrated. And at one point, just these, these, the thought came up, I failed, this is useless, I failed at this practice. And then this mind state came up that said, it's good that you failed. What? <laughs> but <laughs> then there was just this um, falling away um, of, of the identity of the one who fails. The one who fails was really seen as not solid. And when that fell away, and when all the mind states that were building it up fell away, what remained was love. And so um, it wasn't that I'm lovable, it's just what remains was love. And I saw the, um, the polarity between failing and getting it right the dependency of those two. If there's getting it right, then there's going to be failure. (laughs) And both those mind states are also ephemeral. Each one is empty. And so there are brief moments of that that are so freeing. Then Then the mind states don't have as much power. There's no longer an I that's deserving of love 
or is screwed up or whatever it is. It's as though the veils fall away and what remains is the shining qualities. And which particular quality is revealed is different at different times. Um, For each of us, Sometimes um, the beautiful qualities of the heart, we can practice metta and compassion and joy from the emptiness of, from a perspective of not-self. And by that I mean um, at times when there is that thinning or there's a relative emptiness, less solidity around the sense of self, the metta can become boundless because it isn't an I that's radiating it. The metta is radiating. And then if another or others that are receiving the metta are also empty, it's quite amazing. It's like there's nothing that's um, creating any separation and the metta becomes completely boundless and fills everything. It's like there's no particular object. The metta is limitless. And it doesn't mean that we're getting rid of someone if we perceive them as empty or if I'm experiencing this one is empty or others are empty. It means empty of all the sticky mind states, concepts, assumptions, everything else. And just this pure flow of metta that truly is um, boundless. Um, It's very beautiful. And in the same way, joy can be radiated out or can radiate out. It's not a doing anymore. It's just this evoking of joy um, that's radiating from a place of emptiness to emptiness. It's like all, um, it truly is abundant, exalted and immeasurable. And at times, um, the moments when I've experienced that, I've thought, oh, That's what the Buddha meant. It really is abundant and boundless. And so there are, are, as the sense of self and the sense of other thin, we open into an interconnectedness or a sense of not being separate that's boundless and attuned. It's not... um, um, a kind of saccharine place. It's very clear, strong, bright, and the qualities of joy, uh, love, compassion. Everywhere is pervaded with that. 
I was just wanting to pause to allow the experience of that rather than talking about it. So you might just sense that for a moment. Whatever, if there's a beautiful quality present right now, whatever it is, peacefulness, joy, caring, allowing the possibility of it being limitless, pervading. unobstructed. And I'd like to talk a little bit more um, about compassion um, in our practice and also in our daily life. Compassion, sometimes the term relative compassion is used. where it's coming from a sense of self. I'm a kind, compassionate person. Or I'm not a compassionate person. Um, it's more of a doing. Or, and the, and the near, and near and far enemies of compassion, pity, for example, comes from a sense of self. Whereas the ultimate sense of compassion is impartial, unlimited, It's like this inexhaustible energy. Sometimes it's the rays of rays radiating out that shine everywhere. It's that natural responsiveness of the heart in a situation of suffering. And it embodies both receptivity and um, agency. So it's not a passive receptivity. The, there can be a warrior aspect to compassion. Sometimes you'll hear of the sword of compassion, this fierce determination. This is not okay. A very simple example would be, um, I think I've given this to some of you, there are, you have two little toddlers and one of them bites the other. And you don't hit the toddler or whatever, bite them back. But you could remove that child <laughs> gently and say, people are not for biting. And put them over here. <laughs> and so it's that clarity and compassion where we can make a compassionate action from a clear place and a caring place rather than from anger or reactivity. And it's not some thing that I do. It's a natural response. And true compassion is wishing others free from suffering. And it's a soft, beautiful state. There's not an I that's suffering with an other. That feels contracted and painful. And I know that place really well. I've spent a lot of time there, especially as a um, physician, where I've suffered with others and I've been trying to fix their pain so I don't have to feel it. 
Um, and that's not really compassion. It's an overfunctioning, and it's disrespectful, and it creates dependency and a whole bunch of other things. It's not empowering. There's an I reaching out to a them and whatever's going on with them as objects. Rather than, and, and, and getting entangled. And it isn't helpful if I feel it. Um, or if I try to fix their pain, that creates separation. And so what's more helpful is releasing that sense of I. We're just moved by another's suffering and we're there with compassion. So what they're feeling is just compassion, just caring, not our identification with their pain or their fear or their suffering. And you know that you know, if you've ever visited someone who's very ill, um, what they need most, or if someone visited you when you're very ill, what you most need is love and caring. You don't want to have to take care of their pain or feel it. So there's a connection, a being with, with caring. One of my um, dear friends and colleagues um, was a palliative care um, worker for many years. And she told me uh, about one of her patients, a young man in his 30s who had everything had gone right in his life. He had the job he wanted, a partner, children, um, seemed successful. And then he developed... Um, a terminal illness that there was no cure for and so that he knew that he was dying and um, when he was in the hospice he was caught in rage that this had happened to him and injustice and unfairness and he was very angry and of course hurt and he was angry and reactive and hostile to everybody who came and took care of him, and even to his family, to the point where nobody wanted to be in, his, in the room with him. It was too hard. And so they asked this young man, who was a street worker and had been with all sorts of people in the deepest difficulties and conditions, and was um, gentle and very present, And this young man came and sat with him all night. And the young man that was ill was ranting and verbally abusive and yelling and just having a really difficult time. And the young man just sat. He didn't say anything. He didn't go away. He didn't try and fix it. He was just there with caring. And at some point in the early hours of the morning, the young man began to cry as though his heart was broken. And for he just cried and cried and cried. And then finally fell asleep, exhausted. And our poor young 
healthcare worker was able to go to the bathroom <laughs> and then come back and be with him. And when he woke up in the morning, the young man that was ill, it was like he was transformed. He was clear and shining. And he said to the young worker, he said, you never abandoned me. No matter what, you didn't abandon me. And I'm not abandoning myself now. You were there, whatever happened. And I felt your care. And so it's that kind of compassion that isn't judging, that really knows the depth of another's pain and doesn't abandon. And sometimes we're able to do that for ourselves or for another. And it's a real gift, this knowing of universal suffering and universal compassion. It's such a beautiful thing. A monk once asked the Chinese master Yun Men, what is the work of the Buddha's whole life? And Yun Men replied, an appropriate response. And so it's that the more clarity there is through being, um, from the emptying out of all the um, hindrances, kalesas, whatever you want to call them, the more empty there is, the more that possibility for an attuned response arises. Sometimes it might be not knowing, and we're able to be with not knowing. Oh, a moment of not knowing, that's all. And that's not solid either. And so deep compassion is this realization of emptiness, of not being separate, and having resilience. These two combined give us the resilience to be with the world as it is, which is no small task, and not to give up on acting from our values. Upasika Nanayan says, if things are left to their nature, pure and simple, there's no us and no them. The awareness that eliminates the sense of self and other depends on the powers of observation, mindfulness, and discernment. So, though, so and that's what we're all practicing. The more we practice that, the more the possibility there is of the heart opening to love and compassion. Sometimes we can be overwhelmed by fear or pain or despair or futility. Sometimes it can feel like, what's the point of it all? And as we tend the heart with the, all the qualities of the Brahma-viharas, we build the capacity for connection and for resilience 
and we can be resourced by that. And combining that with mindfulness, we know these are just mind states. And they're not self and they're not permanent. The mind states themselves are fabricated, empty. And compassion and this awareness that we're talking about, awareness wisdom, also supports the release of societal suffering. The more we look through Dharma eyes, the increasingly aware we are of unconscious prejudice, privilege, ways we treat or perceive the environment. More and more that becomes seen. And wise view includes both interconnection and separation. And whilst that gives gives rise to a deep sense of interrelatedness and as living beings to everything, everyone, every being, it's also important that we don't use empty, emptiness to say that separations due to gender or class or race or ability are um, an illusion because that's a misperception that leads to suffering. And there are so many instances um, that we could talk about. Um, One in particular that I remember talking to um, a friend who was um, a bhikkhuni about was being told by some of the monks, um, you know, gender is... um, is empty. The idea of gender is empty. You know, um, how we're all, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter. And so she's pointing out, well then, if gender is empty, then why don't you sit at the back of the room (laughs) and get your food last? (laughs) Um, um, Gender and race and class and all those things, as we know, impact the way we're um, perceived in the world, sometimes how we're treated, and um, our lived experience. And denying that there are different experiences due to um, conventional views is, um, leads to suffering. It's a misunderstanding of what um, the Buddha was teaching when he was talking about emptiness. So the totality of awareness reveals both separation and interconnection. And wise view includes seeing all that through the lens of the Four Noble Truths. Yes, this type of suffering is being seen. The suffering due to being a person of color, to having a disability, to having your gender identity not acknowledged, whatever the particular identity is, there's suffering. And it has a cause. And there's a possibility of that cause, of that suffering being um, ceasing. And there's a way to that. And so it's, it's including the Four Noble Truths. 
This is from um, Zenju Earthland Manual. There's no superiority or inferiority between separation and oneness. Oneness is not better than separation. They both exist in their own right. If everything is included in life, then separation and oneness are interrelated. If we can embrace totality, then the fires of our existence can lead to the waters of peace. So wisdom includes both recognizing the actions that bring suffering and appreciating and directly experiencing the ones that bring peace. Watering the seeds of lessening identification and of growing compassion and deepening those pathways of thinning the sense of separate self. One more thing um, I'd like to mention is that sometimes we can burden ourselves with guilt and shame and blame. We can get trapped in identification with those mind states and it's very painful obsessing with the past or with a certain view of ourselves or of another. And we can cling to that. But with wisdom and compassion, we neither identify with the actions nor with the self who did those actions, who by now isn't here anymore anyway. Rather, remorse is compassionate. It's concerned with skillful, benevolent intentions of non-harming, good intentions, rather than making conclusions about self and other. So it's not solidifying around actions and being. So holding a way of being a self in a way that's beautiful or in a way that's suffering. We can do either one. And the invitation is to keep noticing what perspective do I have right now? Am I, uh, am I knowing things through a filter? And what's the filter? Sometimes just knowing what the filter is will evoke its dissolving. Um, and as I was saying before, you can't just say, you're empty. <laughs> Sometimes it might work. But just knowing this is how it is. Being with reactivity, with kindness and with compassion and without an agenda. And that's so helpful. Not having an agenda. Sometimes um, in my practice, when there's been enough space, I've noticed you know, and you, many of you have had times when you've noticed the mind states coming and going, and you're not so caught in them. There's just an awareness of them arising and passing. 
And I've had times where I've seen them coming and going and seen them all believing in themselves and identifying with themselves. And I thought, and this compassion arises, the poor things. (laughs) They don't know that they're empty and they're all believing in themselves. (laughs) It's so funny. You know, you really have to laugh at yourself when you sort of realize that. The fabrications are believing in the fabrications. And it just gets more and more solid. And they're all trying to get it right because they want happiness. They're judging each other because they want happiness. And so there's compassion for them. Give them another job to do. (laughs) So this resting in emptiness, sometimes um, shunyata vihara, abiding in emptiness, the moments that we can experience that, there's peace and there's freeing. And there's a growing equanimity with the paradoxes of um, everything's empty and, and yet Here I am, I'm going to get up and have lunch and eat and relate and all these things. So there's there's, um, allowing of absolutely everything. Everything that arises we can be mindful of. Whatever it is. And we're more and more able to let go. and And things are not so sticky. And we can know that the mind can get filled with the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion, and yet not act on them. Those things can arise, and many of you have spoken about that. Oh, this came up, and then it dissolved. We didn't act on it. And that's no small thing to bring that to the world. And so I'd like to end um, with just with this. Panya Vimuti, freedom in all circumstances, free from the things that obscure, unbounded, freedom through wisdom, freedom through the heart. So let's just sit for a few moments. A sense of including everything. Allowing everything. Not attached to anything. Simply here with the knowing. The heart resting in the open spaciousness of knowing. 